just beat those good old hymns. I, I love them. I love them. And I love that song. Love that song. I was walking um, before the service earlier uh, between the two buildings, and somebody was coming around the side and had their stereo on. You know, when you have somebody's stereo on and you hear it from a distance, you don't hear the words. You just hear the bump, the bump, the bump, the bump. And somebody come around, and I mean, it was, I mean, well, maybe, hmm, man. I didn't say anything to Brother Nathan and Sister Renee about that, but it was like, um, my goodness. But I love, I love this good music, don't you? Music does something to my soul. Helps me like this. And I appreciate it. Well, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, if you'll find it with me this morning. It has been several weeks since we have been in the Gospel of John with me being away and Dr. Gibbs was here and a couple of weeks have been out. But I want to come back to this parable of the Good Shepherd. I thought that we would move on from it because it's been a few weeks. But there's a few verses here that we've not covered and I, I want to cover these verses because they're a blessing to my heart. John chapter number 10. Good to see, by the way, Brother Roki with us. He, um, uh, he was, they sent him to Saudi Arabia. His job sent him to Saudi Arabia. And then he came back. He forgot his wife. Had to come back and get her. And uh, they're only here for a couple of weeks, but sure good to see them this morning. So verse number 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is in hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, Seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there should be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. In this chapter, Jesus is giving us what we call the parable of the good shepherd. We have noted several times in John's gospel that there are seven I am statements in his gospel. Seven times he says, I am. In this passage, there is the fourth and the fifth one. I am the door and I am the good shepherd. This is the only parable in John's gospel. And because it is a long parable and there are different movements in the subject matter, it has suffered much at the hands of false interpretation. But before you can make application, our first task in Bible study is to make interpretation. Only when you understand clearly what Jesus is saying can you then apply that passage to our life. And the parable really breaks down into three different sections. The first section, in verse 1 through 5, where there is a contrast of the true shepherd from the false shepherd. 
You remember that this parable takes place immediately after the incident in John chapter 9 where the rulers of the synagogue have cast out the man born blind because of his growing faith in the Lord Jesus. And this parable is an explanation. It is a, it, it, it is a, a it builds off of, of that particular miracle. Very clearly, Jesus sees those pharisaical rulers of the synagogues as the thieves and the robbers that are mentioned here. And in that part of the parable, there is a contrast between the true shepherd and false shepherds. The sheepfold is the nation of Israel. And there are false shepherds that are trying to lead Israel astray. And so the Lord gives three marks of a true shepherd. If you'll back up to verse 1 and 2. And the first mark is that the true shepherd enters in by the door. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And I would just say that the door is the proper way to enter. If you had tried to come into this auditorium any other way through the windows, you couldn't have. But if you had tried to come in, through another way, we would have said, that's odd. You're not supposed to come into the building that way. If you have legitimate purposes in the building, then you would come through the door. If you have illegitimate purposes, you'd try to come in through a window or cometh in some other way. It's the phrase that he uses. But a legitimate way is to come in through the door. Well, the prophets had clearly laid out in the Old Testament the door. This is how that the Messiah would come. They prophesied of how he would be born, when he would be born, where he would be born. This is how he would be introduced. This is the door by which the shepherd <coughs> is coming to the nation of Israel. He came the right way. He came the expected way. He entered in by the door. He is not saying that he is the door in this section, but he came in by the door. No other person in the history of Israel has come that way, so he's the true shepherd. The second mark of the true shepherd is he's recognized by the porter of the sheepfold in verse 3. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Now I believe that the porter is John the Baptist. He is the forerunner and prepares the way for Christ. He recognized that Christ is the true shepherd of Israel. And he pointed to him when he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He told the nation to repent of their sins in preparation that the Messiah is at hand. He opened the door of the sheepfold for Christ. And then the true shepherd is recognized by the true sheep. Verse 4 and 5. When he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. His sheep are those of the house of Israel that would believe in him. There would be many that would hear him, but there would be some who would hear him and believe him and recognize his voice as the true shepherd. So in these first five verses, there's a contrast between the true shepherd and false shepherd. And then in verse 6 through 10, the phrase that we looked, the passage we looked at the last time, there is his claim to be the door of the sheep. Verse 6 gives us a break in the parable. 
And when Jesus continues the parable, he's talking about the same thing, but it is a little bit different. Because before he was the shepherd who entered in by the door. But this time, in verse 7, he says that I am the door. And he doesn't say anything about the sheepfold, but now he says, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. So he cannot be talking about the nation of Israel now. Because getting saved does not place you in the nation or the sheepfold of Israel. So there is something else that is going on in these verses. Two, there was no invitation in the first part of the parable. But there is an invitation in this part of the parable. He does not invite the false shepherds to come into salvation before. But now he does invite everybody to come in to the door. So when Jesus says he is the door, it's not the same door as in verse number one. It is said that um, the life of an eastern shepherd that many times a shepherd had to take his flock outside of the village and a ways off in order to find pasture for his sheep. And sometimes he would be gone for days, weeks at a time and, and it wasn't possible always to come back to the community sheepfold every night. And so sometimes when the shepherd was away for a long time, at night, he would try to build some kind of little impromptu sheepfold for his sheep at night. Maybe rocks or branches, and he would try to create some kind of enclosure so they wouldn't scatter, so they wouldn't be exposed to wild beasts during the night. And then at the opening where they would come in and out, he would lay down there at that opening, and, and thereby he became literally the door. So if anything tried to get in, if any sheep tried to get out, they would literally have to go over his body. And I believe that's what he's referencing when he says that I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he should be saved, <coughs> and then shall go in and out and find pasture. So he claims to be the door. But then in our verses this morning, here is his claim to be the good shepherd. And this is where he goes back and talks about shepherds and announces he is the good shepherd of the sheep. He contrasts himself with hirelings, which I believe is another description of the Pharisees. And the main contrast between himself and these religious leaders is that he cares for the sheep while they only care for themselves. The hireling only sees the sheep as something that he can use somehow to get something gained for himself. And when the sheep get in trouble, when the enemy comes, when the wolf attacks, they flee, leaving the sheep to fend for themselves. Now, I don't have to tell you that religion is full of these kind of hucksters. I don't have to tell you. TBN, religious television, is full of wolves in sheep's clothing. It is full of false shepherds. And to be honest with you, it ticks me off just a little bit in the flesh that, that people would send their money and their tithe and offerings to some television preacher. Well, how about when you get sick, call and ask if Jimmy Swagger to come and visit you. See if he'll come and visit your, your relative in the hospital. Thank you, brother. And see how much he cares for you, you see. Well, that's what Jesus is referencing. And, and so it's a beautiful picture. It is full of truth. And, 
<coughs> and, and there's so many doctrines that are taught in these, these few verses. And when I was looking at these verses, it, it's, there's, there's a lot of theology to, to ponder, and, 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 and there's a lot of phrases in here. We could get deep into the woods, but, but, but here's what I, I want to do for just a few minutes with the voice that I have, and that's just to look at the passage, not trying to unravel every doctrinal theological issue that comes up because this is a great doctrine verse for the Calvinists and the Reformed theologians and you can get into all of that. But I want to just look at it this morning and I want to talk to you about why I love the shepherd. I would like to somehow speak to your heart more than I do your head this morning. I have three thoughts this morning, and as I was reading the text, a fourth one came to my mind. But I'm only going to give you the three. Why I love the shepherd. First of all, because he is a passionate shepherd. Would you look at verse number 11? I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Verse 15, last phrase, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, therefore doth the Father love me. And boy, there's a phrase right there we could get into. Because I laid down my life that I might take it again. <coughs> Verse 18, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Now, I go back to the shepherd custom of the Middle East. And I've never considered shepherding to be a dangerous occupation. It had dangers and thieves and, and wild beasts and such as that. But I don't ever remember in the Old Testament a shepherd losing his life in carrying out his duty as a shepherd. Shepherding was not a life-hazarding job. And it would have been a rare thing. For a shepherd to care so much for that dirty sheep that he would literally risk his life to save the sheep. I have to be honest with you, if, if, if the bear is going to eat me or the lamb, then I'm sorry, little lamb, it's going to be you, not me. All right? I, just the way that I am. But then again, shepherds are absolutely responsible for the sheep. If something happened to the sheep in a shepherd's care, he needs to produce some evidence that indeed it was a wild beast that devoured it. The book of Amos talks about a shepherd and how that he has to produce a piece of a leg or a piece of an ear to demonstrate that it was a wild beast that devoured the lamb. In fact, there was a law in Exodus chapter 21 that says that if you are keeping your neighbor's ass or oxen or lamb or whatever it might be and if it be hurt and no man see it, there is no evidence of what happened then if it's torn in pieces bring a piece of that as a witness that this is what happened because how does the neighbor know you didn't just sell it in the next town over? So it becomes evidence, evidence and you salvage any part of the animal but it would be very rare, very rare for a shepherd to care so much for the sheep that he would die for the sheep. But I just wanted to come this morning, and, and I wish I had the voice to preach. 
I just wanted to come this morning and tell you that my shepherd is not like other shepherds. He's the shepherd who cares enough for the sheep that he will lay down his life for the sheep. It is a voluntary act. Nobody coerced him. Nobody forced him. He is not compelled to do this beyond his will. And if we wanted to be theologians about it, then we could talk about the atonement because he dies for the sheep. That's a whole doctrine there. But he took your place upon the cross that we might be delivered from the penalty of sin. And that is why I love the shepherd. I'll tell you why I love him. Because he died for me died for me. We sing those songs about when I survey the wondrous cross. That's a great song. And church don't ever get so sophisticated and so smart that the old, old story doesn't thrill your heart anymore. Would it be disappointing to you if we just came to church and sang songs about Calvary read a chapter of Matthew 27 and just talked about Jesus dying on a cross for us and the thing that he died for you, for you. Have you ever wondered why nobody ever writes songs about Buddha and nobody writes songs about Muhammad but they've written thousands of songs about Jesus because you don't sing about people that have had no meaningful impact upon your life. But you do sing a song about somebody that's willing to go to a cross and die for you. You'll never find another shepherd that's willing to die for the sheep. Somebody said, well, if he cares for me, why does he allow bad things to happen in my life? If he cares for me, then why is my life not on a different track? But if you want to know how much he cares, then look to the cross. Because would it have been really any care? Would it have been really any love if he had made your life rosy and fun but left you to die in your sins? Would it have been really any care? Would it have been any love if he assured you a wonderful, wonderful life but no answer for eternity? My mom, everybody knows that my mom is battling cancer. I'll be out at MD Anderson this week. And when we found out that mom had cancer, we did like you did when you found out. Our, our family kicked into high gear and we are committed. We are sold out. We are going to take care of her. Now here's the thing. My mom probably would like a new pair of shoes. My mom would maybe like a new dress. But the concern right now is not the shoes or the dress. The concern right now is the cancer. Now what would it be if our family got together and said, boy, we really love mom. We really going to take care of mom. We all going to buy her a pair of new shoes. We all going to buy her new We are going to fill her closet with shoes and dresses and a new piece of furniture, whatever. We ain't worried about the cancer. We're just going to buy her some new shoes. You would wonder if we really loved her. You would question our care for her. But our love for her drives us to fight the biggest enemy that we're facing right now, and that's the cancer. And if Jesus had said, I'll give you a wonderful life, but in the end, you're going to die in hell and ain't nothing doing about that, you'd say, what kind of love is that? He may not buy you all the new shoes and all the, I feel like preaching for a minute. He may not buy you all the toys and give you a wonderful life, but he took care of eternity for you. He laid down his life on a cross that should have been mine. He 
took the wrath of God upon himself. He suffered the punishment for sins that I have committed. That's love. That's what that is. Don't let the devil feed you a lie that because everything in your life is not wonderful that he doesn't love you because you've got some malady or some discomfort. I tell you, look to the cross. He loves you. A shepherd may be fond of the sheep. He may do his best to take care of the sheep, but he doesn't make the sheep part of his family. He may make one of his pet, but it's not his family. But that's what God did. Reached way down from way up yonder and said, I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you. I'll make you my child. I'll bring you into my family. I'll send my precious son to die for your sin. I'll take you there. That's what he did for me. I love the shepherd. He's a passionate shepherd. Well, I love him because he's a personal shepherd. Look at verse number 14. And I don't underline much of my Bible, but I underline this. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now I find that very, very interesting. He talks about the knowledge between the shepherd and the sheep. And then he talks about the knowledge between the Son and the Father. And it's almost as if there is a comparison between the two. The knowledge that exists between the shepherd and the sheep is like the knowledge that exists between the Father and the Son. I know the sheep, and the sheep know me. I know the Father, and the Father knows me. Now I would say, I would say that he knows the Father. Perfectly. I'd say the Father knows him perfectly. And I would say that he knows me perfectly. He knows everything about you. He knows your feelings. He knows your fears, your trials, your temptations. He knows everything. Now, now we have folks in our church right now going through some stuff. But what a comfort to know that God knows. You've never come to God with news he wasn't aware of. You have told God about what was going on in your life, but you have never informed God of what was going on in your life. Everything you told him, he already knew. Already knew. In fact, I, I love the phrase in Luke chapter 12 where it says that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Are you not of much more value than many sparrows? If you know the hairs on somebody's head, you really know that person. You have taken some time to study that individual. And it's not just that he knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows the number of the hairs on your head. When you combed your hair this morning, he knew that hair 37,293 fell out and went down the sink drain. He knows the number of your hairs. Spurgeon said, Spurgeon said, if there was nobody else in the world except you, and God had nothing to do but think of you, if there were no objects of his attention other than you, he would not know you any more than he knows you right now. Huh? I wish I'd have said that myself. God knows you. God knows you better than you know yourself. There are some things you have deceived yourself about you don't know. 
There's some things I know about myself I wish I did not know. But God knows. God knows you better than any acquaintance that knows you. I've had some good friends that knew me really well, but none of them has ever known me like God knows. None of them, my wife hasn't even counted the number of hairs on my head. God knows you. God knows every thought, every thought that you've ever imagined has ever come to your mind, God knows it. I have at times forgotten what I was thinking, but God hasn't forgotten. I've been in the middle of a conversation and forgot what I was getting ready to say. God doesn't know. I've had to write things down. God don't have to write anything down to remember it. He knows your thoughts and God knows every trouble, every valley that you've ever walked through, every tear that you've ever cried, every desert that you've ever sat in, every fear that you've ever felt, every worry, every anxiety, every crisis. God knows all about that. Your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask it. God knows. Fear you not. Are you not of more value than many sparrows? God hasn't counted the edge of your head just because you have something new. God has done that because he cares for you. Is it not true, is it not true that you are most familiar with the people that you care for the most? The ones that you love the greatest are the ones that you pay more attention to. Well, I want you to know that God knows you because he loves you. And I know this sounds like Joel Osteen, and I'm not trying to make it sound like Joel Osteen, but you are of great value to him. You are valuable to the Father. There shall not one hair of your head perish. Now that's not a promise you'll never go bald, bald, but it is a promise that God will take care of you in every way. I checked it this morning in Daniel chapter 3 when the the three Hebrew boys walked through the fire. There's a phrase there and it says that not a hair of their head was singed. God didn't even let their hair get messed up in the fiery furnace. I'm saying to you that he knows you like a personal shepherd. Personal. Now now come back to John 10. There's another statement here, and and this is a whole message here, and I'm going to give it to you in three minutes. Verse 16. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, they shall hear my voice, there shall be one fold and one Shepherd. Now he introduces a new concept. And the concept here is that he has other sheep who are not of this fold. Now the fold at the beginning of the parable is the nation of Israel. But here's what Jesus does. He lifts his eyes beyond the cross, past the empty tomb. He sees the gospel going into all regions of the world. And he sees a bunch of Gentile dogs getting saved. In verse 16, that's what he's talking about. He has come to the nation of Israel. Israel's rejected him. He's going to call other sheep, and there's going to be one fold and one shepherd. Now, now, now we understand dispensationally that there is a distinction between Jew and Gentile. We know that God has a program for the Gentile nation and that he will pick that nation, that, that program back up in the end. We, we know that. But as far as being in Christ, there is no distinction. There is neither male nor female, bond or free, Jew nor Greek in Christ. You are all one in Christ. That's why I don't like the term Jewish Christian or Gentile Christian because in Christ we are all one. If you are a Jew here this morning and you are in Christ, I've got the same privileges as you do and you have the same privileges as I do. Now, 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 now it's a doctrine, there's a doctrinal debate over the statement. 
But let me tell you what Jesus is saying in the plainest terms, all right? Here it is. He included me. That's what it says. It says that he came to the Jewish nation and he presented himself as their king and they rejected him. But the plan was never to save just the Jews. The plan was for the Jews to become a missionary nation and to save Gentiles out of that. The plan all along, all along, was to include Gentile dogs like you and me. He looked beyond the cross and beyond the empty tomb and he looked into history and he saw a great community, a great crowd of Gentiles like you and I that don't have the promises and don't have the privileges of Israel. But he included us in the plan of God. He looked down in 1976 and saw a little seven-year-old boy bowing his knee beside his bed, trusting Christ as a Savior, and he included... That's who he was talking about. He's talking about me in verse 16. Ah, he's a personal shepherd. I give you my third thought this morning. He's a passionate shepherd. He died for me. He's a personal shepherd. He knows me. But here's a paradox for you. He's a powerful shepherd. Now, you don't normally associate passion with a shepherd. You don't associate personhood and knowledge with a shepherd. And you don't associate power and shepherd in the same passage. Shepherds in the East are either teenage boys or they're old men. Dirty, tattered clothes and weather-beaten faces. They're not bodybuilders. They're not strong men. But look at verse number 18. He says, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. He's talking about life and death. He says, as the shepherd, I have power over life and power over death. I thought about David, that shepherd boy in the Old Testament. And when David went to fight Goliath, nobody, nobody thought it was a good idea to send David out there. And nobody thought that David was powerful enough to defeat Goliath. In fact, his brothers were annoyed to see him even show up on the battlefront. What are you doing here? This is a man's job. You're just a kid. You belong following the sheep. You have no business being here. What they didn't know is that teenage boy had had enough power to kill a bear and a lion with a slingshot. So he had a whole lot more power than anybody thought that he had. So when it came time to him to fight the biggest giant of them all, it wasn't his first battle. This is not his first rodeo. And come to find out, instead of him being no match for Goliath, Goliath was no match for him. Well, I think about Jesus. Nobody thought that he had any power. He's just a lowly Galilean that comes from Nazareth. But every disease fled from before him. Every demon fled from before him. The tempest laid down, had his feet, and was caught. And when it came time to fight the biggest enemy of them all, death there was no match for him. In fact, look what it says. He says, I have power to lay it down. In other words, nobody has enough power to kill me. You so why didn't the Romans kill him? Only when he gave them permission. 
I believe, listen, I believe that he could have hung on that cross in that condition for eternity and never died until he said it's time. When he died, when he died, it, it, it wasn't that he just gave out. It wasn't just that he took as much as he could take and his body could not take it any longer. No, he called for death to come and take it. He ordered death to come. When he died, when he, when he died, it was not something death doing to him. It was something that he was doing to death. He gave up the ghost. He commended his spirit to the Father and said, Death, come here, i got a job for you. <laughs> I wish I could preach this morning. Death has tried, death has tried so many times. And he said, come over here, stand right here. He said, now when I tell you, when I tell you, and not before, but when I tell you, you're going to take my life. Don't, don't care, you don't have a say in the matter, but when I get ready to die, I'll let you know. And when I let you know, that's when you're going to take my life. You, you, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for sinners. I'm going to satisfy the justice of God. When the Father says I've suffered enough, I'm going to tell you, and you're going to come and get me. With all of our doctors and all of our surgeries and all of our vitamins and all of our smoothies, we try to hold off death. I'm going to tell you something. You can't hold off death one minute before it is time to go. But he has power. To let down of his life. Power to let down. Ah, that ain't all. He says, I have power to take it again. Death couldn't take him one minute sooner. And death couldn't hold him one minute longer. <laughs> he, said, when I, he, he said, I'll tell you when I die. And I'll tell you how long I'm going to be dead. I'm going to get up in three days. Ain't nothing you can do about it. That's power is what that is. Harry Houdini, the greatest escape artist the world has ever known. You ever heard of him? Harry Houdini, of course, was one of the most famous people in the world. He was a great escape artist and became very famous in, in getting out of impossible situations. One year in, in San Francisco, they buried Harry Houdini alive. They put him in a coffin, put it in a crypt, Six feet down, took a bulldozer and covered it with six feet of dirt. And Harry Houdini got out. Great escape artist. Now there's a trick behind it all. Right? Just They never found out the tricks. Harry Houdini died on Halloween 1926. And Harry Houdini was always troubled by thoughts of the afterlife. His mother died when he was young and it was very traumatic to him. And he always wanted to believe that there was life after death. And that day, as there is now, there were mediums, spiritists, who claimed to be able to make contact with the dead. They would hold seances and supposedly contacting a loved one's person beyond the grave. But Harry Houdini, being a magician, he knew all the tricks. He knew that they were all fakes. And in a lot of his stage shows, he did things to expose the fakery of these mediums. But he always wondered, is there life after death? So Harry Houdini and his wife, Bess, they, they made an agreement. And they had a secret code, they had a secret code between them, that whoever dies first, that on the anniversary of their death, they try to contact the one remaining. 
Harry Houdini died first. He died Halloween night, 1926. So the next year, his wife held a seance that night. Several hundred people were there to try to see if Harry Houdini would contact her beyond the grave. And he didn't. So the next year, they held a seance to see if Harry Houdini could contact him beyond the grave. For 10 years, she held this seance, Anna come to the piano. And for 10 years, they would meet. They would try to contact Harry, and Harry would never contact her. After 10 years, Beth said 10 years is long enough to wait for any man, and she quit. But his followers kept it up. Halloween night this year, Charleston, South Carolina, they held the 97th seance. It's been 97 years since he died to see if Harry Houdini would contact them beyond the grave. But evidently, Harry has met an enemy that he couldn't defeat. But Jesus said, in three days, I'll be back. I'm just telling you now, telling you now, that in three days, I'm coming back. I will die on my terms, and I will rise again on my terms. You don't usually think power and shepherd in the same sentence, but you're not thinking about my shepherd. And I want you to know that the sheep are safe in the care of the shepherd. Death, death can't take me until it's my time to go. And death won't be able to keep me any more than death could keep him in that grave. Whatever it is that you need in your life, he has the power for. There's power in his blood to cleanse you of every sin. There's power for every addiction, for every pain, for every struggle, for every sin that you can't let go of. There's power in Jesus' name. That's why I love the shepherd this morning. Heads about eyes closed. We've had a good service this morning, good song service, great passage of scripture. I think some folks ought to just come this morning and say, Lord, you didn't come to ask you for anything. I want to tell you that I love you. I just want to come and tell you that I love you. Tomorrow I'll ask, but today is to say thanks. To say thanks. What a shepherd that we have this morning. Would you come? Would you come?